Greetings fellow explorers of the unknown and welcome to a third episode of a special collaboration between scientific imagination and the sign in space. A podcast that ventures beyond our terrestrial boundaries to unravel the mysteries of interstellar communication. I'm your host, Sabine Winters, a philosopher of space and science. In this special podcast series, we will embark on a journey through the cosmos, where we will explore the ambitious project known as A Sign in Space, founded and directed by multimedia artist Daniela de Paulis. A Sign in Space is a groundbreaking initiative that brings together a myriad of brilliant minds, scientists, collaborators and state-of-the-art scientific facilities. The mission? To decipher a cosmic message, artfully and scientifically crafted and beamed to the Earth by extraterrestrial life. Throughout this series, we will be joined by an array of guests who have been instrumental in shaping this visionary endeavor, from the brilliant minds at the SETI Institute to astronomers, writers, physicists and artists, each bringing their unique perspective on the profound implications of sending and receiving signals from the stars. As we anticipate the day that we receive a response from the cosmos, we will explore the profound implications of encountering an extraterrestrial civilization. This project is like the dress rehearsal of that very moment. And as we speak, thousands of people have joined the special created Discord channel to decipher the message that has been sent to the Earth the 24th of May. What will be the impact on religion, philosophy and our understanding of life itself? Join us as we contemplate these thought-provoking questions and their potential influence on humanity. In this podcast, Daniela introduces herself, the project and what she thought of when composing the message. We will also listen to writer and astronomer Roy Smits, director of the artist-in-residency of the SETI Institute Bettina Forger and space lawyer and physicist Mukesh Bhatt. So, dear listeners, fasten your cosmic seatbelts, because this podcast is not only about reaching out to the distant realms, but also discovering the boundless possibilities that lie within ourselves. For more information and joining the Discord channel, visit assignin.space and scientificimagination.org. My name is Daniela De Paulis. I'm a media artist and I work on very large global projects where I combine media arts, live performance art with science, technology and culture in general. I'm the founder and director of Signing Space. So I initiated the project in 2019 and I am the person who brought together the scientists, the various collaborators, the scientific facilities, and pretty much I'm in charge of leading all aspects of the project, although it is very collaborative. I'm the person who gives the project a strong direction, artistically and also scientifically. So besides, I'm part of the, of the SETI committee, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Committee. It's a group of about 100 researchers who study SETI from different perspectives. So we have specialists from the field of astronomy, physics, philosophy, anthropology, and art, amongst others. 
And uh, as an artistic researcher, I, of course, I look at safety from, from a point of view that is complementary to that of the scientists. And throughout the years, I've been part of the SETI committee for the past eight years. So I am um, regularly in touch with the latest development in SETI research, and I'm very much in contact with uh, SETI researchers, and I know the main topic of the discussion. So for me, when I was composing this message, it was not only a matter of making, of creating a message that was artistically interesting, but also I really wanted this message to be aligned with the research in extraterrestrial intelligence that we have in 2023. So I really wanted it to be as aware as possible of the current discussions in this field. Right now, there's an incredible global gathering on the Assign in Space Discord channel. Participants from all corners of the world have come together to share their enthusiasm for this extraordinary project and have joined efforts of decoding the message. Discord has become, this, this channel for me has become really a very special place. First of all, because I see these people working for, for my project, basically. So they work as part of my project. It is completely voluntary. There are about 4,000 people who subscribe to the Assigning Space channel on Discord. Although out of these 4,000 people, there are about three, 400 people who are active at any time during the day. Considering the, um, the Earth rotates, we have always people engaged from various parts of the world. And by looking at the, at the chat, uh, there is a, a consistent group of people who is pretty much there every day. And these people are maybe a group of 30, 40 people, maybe a bit more. So it's interesting to learn a little a bit about their approach, their way of thinking, their, their way of interpreting the message somehow delineates. So their mindsets. So it tells a lot about the person, which I think is really interesting. And also not only that, but how they interact with each other as a group. I think it's very special. It's really like seeing a group of actors on stage, people searching for something. They're searching for the, for the message. So they don't have a script. They are making a script, basically. They have a question and they are creating the story around this question. So it is really, I think, quite special. And some of them even lift the, the curtains. So there is a character called Luna, who I presume is a, is a man, at least from his profile picture. And Luna really enriches the chat with a lot of philosophical considerations. So in the amongst the various technical comments, scientific comments, Luna posts comments about life, about philosophy, about really interesting topics. He's such an important character in the in the project, and he he really highlighted how he feels like he is part of this artwork as an actor. He calls and out our project, so he really feels part of it. Part, he feels like he's a co-creator, which indeed he is. I mean, he completely understood this. And as an artist, it's really really rewarding to see. When you had a plan, an artistic plan, and it is actually being fulfilled. So you actually see that 
people understood what you're trying to, to say, so that this is not just a scientific performance, but it is, it is also relational art. It is also a form of electronic, if you like, and probably a lot more as well. As we approach the eighth week mark since the signal's transmission to Earth, anticipation fills the air. The feel surrounding the message is gradually being lifted, with certain participants making significant strides in deciphering its content. Yet, the question that lingers in everyone's mind is whether the ultimate puzzle will be solved in the end. Stay tuned as we go into conversation with our guest about the meaning of the message. You might actually find some clues. I think I I believe it will be uncovered. I mean, it's really because at the end it is a message made by humans, so it will it will be uncovered. There will be for sure someone around the world who will think of the solution for sure. It's only a matter of time, but if not, it doesn't matter. So for me, every interpretation of the message is valid, is as good as you know, the solution. So we, me and the, the other people I worked with for composing this message, well, I had a very clear artistic direction of the message. I knew exactly what I wanted it. And this collaborator really helped me to make it possible. So we do have one specific interpretation of the message. But if if these people find another interpretation that is somehow valid, that makes sense, why not? I mean, those could be equally important. Also, if we ever get, we ever got an extraterrestrial message, there will never be someone telling, okay, this is the correct solution. <laughs> there will be for sure thousands of interpretations, exactly like in this case. No one will be able to decide which one is the correct one. So there are some which are very touching. Even people who are not on Discord, they send me interpretations. There is an artist from Poland who has been sending me really, really creative interpretations with images. And it's so beautiful. I mean, that is equally valid. My name is Bettina Fauger. I'm the director of the Artist in Residence program at the SETI Institute. So the SETI Institute was initially actually a part of NASA Ames after the Apollo program. There was this question of what it actually meant to step into the cosmos. First stop moon, what next? Whom else may be out there? The SETI Institute became a, a nonprofit in the 1980s. And the focus of the Institute is the research question, are we alone in the universe? What is the prevalence and origin of life and intelligence? What is even intelligence? And then also to sh share those insights and that kind of research with the world. So aside from having a very heavy research focus, at the Carl Sagan Center, which is kind of the home base of the SETI Institute. We also have the Allen Telescope Array in, North, in Northern California in Hat Creek, which is a beautiful, very quiet location. You can't even take your cell phone. So very, very quiet. And then there is a very strong focus on education and outreach. So, you know, bringing our research to a larger audience. So as the director of the Artisan Residence Program, I was aware of Daniela's phenomenal project. She came in as an affiliate. Normally, our artists come into the program 
at the beginning of a research cycle, they come in with the research questions. I hook them up with our researchers and scientists. But Daniela's project was already pretty much baked. She knew what she was going to do. And so what she needed from us was what I like to call a gravitational assist. And so I was delighted to do that because what she was planning to do was so much in the sweet spot of what the SETI Institute does. I knew that we had to be part of this project and part of this conversation. So once she was invited into the program as an affiliate, of course, she had access to our researchers and scientists and also our staff who are fantastic at doing promotions and creating connections. And then Daniela also invited me on that uh, group of advisors that discussed what shape the message should be, the implications of the Assign in Space project. My name is Roy Smits. I'm a Dutch astronomer and writer. So I've worked in the astronomy field for about 20 years, worked in the Netherlands, worked in the, the UK with the Square Kilometer Array, helped develop new projects. And I've, in, in the remaining time, I've done a lot of writing. I've written a book in Dutch about uh, the emergence of astronomy, the influence of telescopes, all the way up to the latest developments in astronomy. The book is called Telescopes and Time Machines. I also do a lot of outreach towards children. I love teaching them astronomy. I've done a lot of teaching in, in schools, primary schools. And recently I've released a children's book called Space Monkeys, which is a nice, exciting adventure about Robbie, a main character who goes on a great adventure. So I do all these things just to promote science, to promote astronomy, but also to make people and children excited for science. My role has been very broad in the project. I've been involved from the very beginning. I know Daniela more than 10 years now, and I've worked with her on lots of projects related to astronomy and radio communication. And in this project, I've helped with the initial brainstorming and initial shaping of the project. And later on, I've been more involved into the composition of the actual message. My name is Mukesh Bhatt, B-H-A-T-T. I always spell it since people leave the H out. I am trained as a physicist, but I also have qualifications in languages and law. And currently, as a very, very mature student, I'm following doing research in the space law of space colonization. In addition to that, I came to space colonization because I became disabled some years ago. And it turns out that small print in the benefits agency in the UK allows you to study so I started doing this from the point of view of culture and migration, and I just found so many people getting so annoyed and controversial over race, ethnicity, and so on, So that I decided it was safer to be out in space where nobody can hear you scream. Some years ago, I helped organize a conference on astrobiology, and we, Daniela de Paulis and I met up. And that was about four years ago, before the lockdown. And about two, three years ago, she got in touch with me again to ask me if I would become part of a group that could advise on a different aspects of her current project, which is the sign in space. And in particular, as part of an advisory group for almost 18 months, we held weekly meetings, sometimes monthly meetings, where we talked about various aspects from different perspectives. And... I found it was effectively my job through the entire set of meetings to always represent anybody 
who was not from North America or from Western Europe. In essence, a sort of multicultural, pluricultural, plurilingual sort of aspect in terms of mythologies, in terms of cultures, in terms of I'm not going to say religion because I'm not religious and I don't particularly like the religious aspect, but often religion and mythology go together. One of the questions we asked was, if aliens contact us, how would we react? Now, that is an interestingly varied question to answer. I'm aware of, and here I'm going to be careful because the main cultures that I tend to know about are the Arabic, the Chinese, and the Indian. And in each case, there's a degree of nationalism and link to religionism, as it were, fundamental religion uh, aspects. But what I'm aware of is particularly that something like 60% of the world lives in Asia, and a large part of that world was influenced by Buddhism from 500 BC to 1200 Common Era. The Chinese were actually very instrumental in talking to the Indians at the time, because Buddhism started in India, moved into China, Korea, Japan. Three of the most successful economies in the world are, well, four now, India, China, Korea, Japan, all have Buddhist influence, but effectively they're part of Indian philosophy. Now, why do I say this is important? It's because the cultures of India and China in particular have always looked towards their understanding of science and technology where they had already decided, they'd already agreed, they'd already studied what happened beyond the Earth. So what you have is around about 1,600 years ago, there was a gentleman in northern India who actually described the mechanism of an eclipse, which wasn't agreed in Europe until 1700 or so. The largest university that, it, that has ever existed was also in Eastern India, and that was where the Chinese, the Japanese, and the Indians met to discuss many different ideas. Now, part of what actually fed into these Indian philosophies, the Buddhist philosophies, and the cultures of China and Japan, is the recognition that there are, and there always were, other planets, that there are other stars with various aspects of life and, and, and so on. If you look at the origin myths of these cultures, there is no creator god. The gods turn up after the origin of the universe. And one of the most interesting things I found recently, only a few years ago, which apparently I'd known about since childhood, was a text which discusses Indian philosophy in story form. And it has an entire section concerning the story of a queen. As you know, everybody in a story is either a princess or a queen or a prince. And this actually describes multiverses, planetary travel, interplanetary travel, as well as time travel. Now, this was written in the ninth century in the Common Era. It is a major text in the Eastern cultures, and yet it is completely unknown outside in, in the West. There are many ways to put it, as we know from thousands of years of texts, but the main one I would put it is that the Indian philosophists also talk about an interconnectedness in the universe. We are not just individual humans. We're not just individual humans in society, but we are individual humans on Earth, and Earth is very much part of the universe, and the universe is, uh, itself connects back to us. For me, what I love about it is that it gives people a sense of what it would actually be like of receiving 
a radio signal from an extraterrestrial civilization. What will happen without the bias of science fiction novels and the Hollywood drama that usually comes with these kind of events? What would actually happen? We humans, we are storytelling creatures. We use our imagination for storytelling. We convey knowledge via storytelling. But storytelling also needs conflict. If you have a movie about aliens, there needs to be conflict. Otherwise, it is more like a documentary. So any kind of movie or science fiction novel out there will have coloring, making things exciting, making you question, adding philosophical concepts in there. But in real life, you, you, you'll get a signal. There is no conflict. Of course, we can fabricate conflict, but in the end, we just want to understand. We all have a common goal, trying to understand what this signal is. We work together and trying to find out. And yeah, that's the interesting thing about this project is we're now seeing a movie like the movie Contact, where, of course, we get a signal from space very similar to this. And in the movie, there's a lot of conflict. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of political conflict. There's a whole religion aspect to it. In the end, somebody blows up the whole device that they've created out of the signal. It's all about conflict and, and, and the good and the bad of, of humans. But in real life, it'll be much more timid than that. It'll be exactly what we see now. People discussing, debating, trying to get to a solution. And I think the contrast between what we're actually seeing in this project and what, what, what Hollywood and science fiction writers show us, that contrast is what this project beautifully shows. And I think this, what we're seeing here is for the first time, gives us a realistic glimpse of what it would really be like to receive a signal from some extraterrestrial civilization. Well, what happens? People will start contributing, will, will have ideas on what this could possibly be. And this requires, like we need in science, not just a single mindset. We need people with all different backgrounds, all different ideas, and they all need to get together and try out, try different mindsets, different approaches to try to understand what the content of this signal actually means, how to look at it. That's the only way you can get to a solution as to what the actual meaning of the message would be. And I think that is exactly what we're seeing now. We're seeing the process of we've received this message and now, now what is it? What do we do with it? People get together on Discord, discuss. And I think we also see how science works because that is how science should work. When we discovered radio pulsars for the first time, which is the topic that as an astronomer I've worked on, radio pulsars were also signals from space, radio signals from space that were just pulses, very highly periodic pulses. They were so perfectly periodic that people will think, well, this is not natural. This must be a sign of intelligence. So to try and understand what that is, you need people, in this case scientists, with all kinds of different ideas thinking about what could this be because you have no context. You just get the signal. You don't know what it is. So in the end, people came up with the idea that these are what we call neutron stars that rotate and we understand where the stability comes from. But you also need people that actually think, well, maybe this is an alien signal from a civilization. And if it is, what would it be? Would it be like a beacon or a clock? What would this be? You do need people with that kind of different mindsets. Otherwise, you will miss something. You cannot just have one single mindset and try to solve a problem because, you know, in science, there might be 50 different possibilities and you need all to explore all 50 possibilities before you get to the answer. That I find interesting about this project is that that's exactly what we're seeing. 
one area I think it will have a major impact because most of our modern society now uses science as a paradigm rather than mythology is we will be redefining for ourselves in society what life is. Now, we've already redefined life in terms of science and astrobiology from sentient organisms all the way down to molecules. And my hope here is that it will help to underline for most of us in culture and society that instead of looking at the differences between us, whether it's skin color or language or anything else, that knowing that there are other entities out in space will actually help to pull humans together. That's my hope. I love Daniela's project for several reasons. I love that it really is a dress rehearsal for post-detection. We only think about it. They are post-detection protocols, but nobody has really tested it and thought in depth of what it would mean to really receive a signal. And the way Daniela calibrated it, it really is aimed at the globe. It's not a US-centric, NASA or SETI-centric project, when I mean SETI, like SETI Institute-centric or European Space Agency-centric. It really involves everyone on every continent, whether or not people are technically advanced or coders or not, or artists or not. And that is what we need, I think. Once an alien signal does maybe come in, we need the cooperation of everybody all over the world, but also different perspectives and abilities and talents need to come into play to really think about something so momentous, this kind of, you know, par real paradigm shift. People say paradigm shift all the time, but an alien signal would be an actual paradigm shift the way that phrase was actually initially invented, like a Copernican revolution, but just on a larger, grander scale. You can't leave that to a handful of scientists and policymakers. We all need to be involved. In it. And I think Daniela's project in space really models that. My perspective was, when I thought about constructing a message, okay, it'll be a series of ones and zeros. How can we make ones and zeros interesting and relevant? And Daniela's approach is just out of the box, let's try to think of some interesting approach to this. And she got people together. And the process in which this happened, that already is part of the art project. That is a wonderful piece of output from this art project itself. But for me, it was always much more inside the box restricted. We were going to have a series of ones and zeros. The other thing is that it needed to be universal. And there was a lot of debate about this. Would the, would the message be aimed towards humans? Would it be in our language? You know, you, we've had so many ideas, but it could simply be as simple as, as a message, like hello world, you know, a little wave towards us, as simple as that. But it would be in a human language. I personally liked to have a universal because I think if we ever go to pick up a signal from extraterrestrials, we cannot expect there to be anything in there that is from our language or our culture or even our ways of, of encoding signals. It'll be universal. Any civilization that it has intelligence should be able to understand the content of that message without any bias towards your culture or language. So there were a lot of interesting conversational strands that were happening. One was 
for example, are we too human-centric when we're thinking of a message? What if the aliens don't have eyes? Can they read a message? What if they don't have ears? What if they are a fungus? What if their life expectancy or their lifespan is 10,000 years and it takes them 10 years to have a thought? How long will we have to send the signal? What if they are, you know, a little microorganisms, blip, you know, they may be smart, but, you know, where on the planet are we? It's nearly a rabbit hole. They're fascinating conversations, but it is a rabbit hole once you start thinking like, oh, but how can we imagine this alien that we are sending this message to? But th this was a conversation that could have gone on for five years. We, we asked all the questions. We cannot answer any of these questions, but at least they were asked. And then, so turning it around and then saying, okay, so who's now receiving? Is the signal going to be a text in English? Not everybody speaks English. Should it be music? Should it be a picture? You know, because you always have to decentralize yourself and de-anthropomorphize and question who you are and your day-to-day -day life to compose an alien message and then also think about if it's really going to be for a global audience, how are we going to do this? It shouldn't be that people get this message and, oh, that's nice, that's it. It, it should be when we receive an actual message from some extraterrestrial origin, it won't be instantly solved. We'll be puzzled by it. We have no context on what this is. We need to think about it. We need to debate it. We need to get a lot of people together to solve it. People from all different mindsets, just like we see in science. You can't just have scientists with a single mindset. You need scientists from all kinds of mindset get together to solve problems, to understand what we see in the universe. And that's exactly what people should be doing to understand the message. You got to start thinking, what would aliens send us? I'd like to say at this point, I do not know what the message is. I am not in the circle of three or four who put this thing together. So I also hesitate to comment too much on Discord because people may assume that I know something because I'm the director of the app program. What I really love, though, are conversations where people are suddenly asking them these questions. They're like, wait a minute, we're assuming binary code, but what if the alien is an octopus? An octopus have eight digits. So maybe it's base eight, right? So it's like, you are really thinking, I love this. I love where you're going with this. I don't know if it's correct, but I just love that people are going through this exercise and are questioning, like, wait a minute, maybe our concept of space and time is wrong. Maybe our concept of math is flawed. Maybe that's a whole different math. And I, and I think that's a wonderful component of the project. And, and of course, there are people who are now really interpreting also the visual aspect of the of the image that has come out. And I love seeing the iterations of that. And so there's so many different angles of tackling it, whether it is data visualization or whether it's an object itself. So all those, you know, people are sort of circling around this, this field of dots, you know, what that could mean. The focus of the SETI Institute is the research question, are we alone in the universe? And hoping to find examples, other examples of what life is, it helps us to understand ourselves better, right? We're really looking for a mirror, right? Because right now we, we are alone. We, we don't know for sure if we are alone or not. There's no evidence, but there is, there are so many tantalizing clues that we may not be alone. And 
I think it would really, for me personally, create a deeper sense of belonging to the cosmos, that we don't just belong to this earth, but we belong to the solar system, we belong to the galaxy, we belong to this universe. And at the same time, make this earth so much more special because we have our own version of an iteration of life. So I am extremely intrigued to discover if the basic concepts and elements of life are universal. We say that, you know, when we say universal, we mean universal on this planet, but really universal in the universe. Or if there are other timescales or other quantum physics or other things that exist. I think it will really stretch and help our imagination because we have to let go of so many preconceived notions to answer those questions, are we alone in the universe? And what may other life look like? So the SETI Institute is, of course, known for the Allen Telescope Array and for the search for signals beyond Earth. But a huge amount of research, increasingly more so in recent years, is the field of astrobiology and exoplanet research. And both avenues are showing us how diverse life is, even on our own planet, and how diverse planets can be. So astrobiology, the study of life beyond Earth, looks at life on Earth like extremophiles. So creatures that love being frozen, or being boiled alive, or being irradiated. Not that they can tolerate it, they like it there. They like 100 degrees and, and super salty water, which would just, you know, desiccate any other life or decimate any other life. And that provides us clues with how resilient life is and how, how many different architectures there are and patterns there are for life. And so if something is possible here, for example, we have researchers who go into like Mars analog environments. So the Atacama Desert, or we have a researcher who explores the glaciers at the South Pole, looking for life forms there. So if it can exist in an extreme environment on Earth, it could exist in the same ex environment on Mars. And so it shows you possibility of what can be. And the definition of what is a habitable zone has expanded a lot in recent years because of that research. And of course, now that we found all those exoplanets, that are absolutely crazy. And so many of them. So ocean worlds, ocean worlds that have an icy shell, rogue planets that just float around the universe without any kind of sun, not attached to any star. And there are many hypotheses that those worlds could actually be more habitable than the Earth because they may be orbiting stars that have that are dimmer but live longer so life would have more time to develop or on an ice planet with a on a water planet with an icy shell you would be really protected from cosmic rays and solar rays and there would be all that water and so you're starting to think you know like you scientists are using their imagination and they're getting all this data and it's like ah imagine what's possible this is phenomenal so this is why this is such a dynamic area of research. And there are lots of great clues. I mean, with the increasingly sensitive instrumentation where you can look at the atmosphere and the wind patterns of a planet that is several light years away, imagine what we can do 10 years from now. We can maybe find biosignatures before we can find technosignals. So I'm very excited. And I think 
artists are be going to become more and more relevant in this exploration. Uh, you need a creative imagination and you need to be critical. And contemporary artists are very critical. They take nothing for granted. It's, artists are doing more than just making things look nice. Right? Artists come up with ideas and concepts and interesting research questions. And that is why we love having artists in residence at the SETI Institute, because they come in and ask unusual questions of our scientists and maybe questions that our scientists hadn't even considered or thought of. In a larger context, an alien or knowing of the presence of an alien would be a big question to us as humans as well, to think about what is an Earth? And when we're thinking of earthlings, we only think of humans, but you know, every tree, every blade of grass is an earthling, every ladybug, every banana is an earthling, you know? So I think it's really going to shift our perception on a very large scale. That may do a lot of good because I think we become as humans problematic when we get myopic and it's like my street, my neighborhood, my house my thoughts, my religion, taking that, stepping back and taking a larger perspective. It's usually a fantastic exercise to help you understand other human beings, have more empathy for others and the planet. Communication only travels at the speed of light, which is very fast, but this is very big. So it'll take many years, many decades, maybe a hundred years before it will reach, if you want to send something back, before it will reach that civilization. If we find one that is within light years of us that we can actually see and, and, and hear, listen to, it means that the universe is filled with billions of civilizations like ourselves. It's not just us and them. It's going to be everywhere in the universe and i think that perspective will change how we see ourselves we human beings we have a very tribal mindset we like to think of ourselves as part of a group we're part of a family or we're part of a of a sports club or we're we're we have a nationality we're part of a country and we like to pitch ourselves with regard to other groups we like to see ourselves as as better right everybody Root for their sports club. When when the Netherlands has a as a football game, I root for the Netherlands because I'm Dutch. We we always do this, and I think this is also at a fundamental core of a lot of the conflict is that we think of ourselves as a group. We talk among ourselves. We we like to think of ourselves as better as another group. We don't have an open view of of other groups. We're always biased towards that, and that has a bit of a negative impact in when there are conflicts. And we see this, this can escalate into all kinds of ways. We can see football teams fighting each other physically, but on a larger scale, we see countries having violence towards each other. Of course, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them is that tribal mindset that we have. There's nothing in our society that makes us see ourselves as humans because we don't, we don't pitch ourselves towards any other civilization. We can do it towards animals, but, you know, Animals don't judge us. Animals are just animals. You have a dog, dog doesn't judge you. And that's, I think, is the difference. We, we, we don't have a perception that there's any civilization out there that can judge us as being human. Once we would get a signal from an extraterrestrial civilization, that will change because suddenly there is a civilization out there 
that in our perception can judge us. So suddenly we see ourselves as humans and what are our qualities as a human being? What have we done? What, what do we look like to them? Um, we do a lot of good things. We have a lot of advances in science. We've clearly created a, a stable, let's think it's stable society in many places in the world. But we also are confronted with our weaknesses. Still a lot of poverty. We, we have wars. Uh, you know, we're not always taking uh, the best care of our environment. Suddenly we're exposed to that. And it's a bit like the perspective that someday a guest will come over to your house. When the guest comes over, you clean your house because one side, one side you want the guest to feel comfortable, but also, you know, you have a perception of being judged. You want to have the house nice and clean. I think that would be a wonderful perspective to have. The idea that someday in the future, aliens are going to visit us. We want to clean up the planet. We don't want aliens to come in here and, and say, oh, it's a nice planet you've got here, but uh, what's that hole in the ozone layer? What's that doing there? Well, you know, it's a bit warm in here. You, you check your CO2 levels, you know, this could be bad for your plants and, and life form. We don't like that idea of being judged like that. We, I think we dread that kind of negative judgment. So if we would actually discover there were a universe filled with, with alien life forms, I think that within the generations that follow, we will slowly change our perspective in trying to see ourselves as humans and try to show the best of us as human beings. I think one of the main aspects of the project is that it contributes to equality in three ways. One is it brings people together trying to decipher something that is not part of the normal geopolitics of everyday life. So it's not English, it's not Tamil, it's not Spanish, it's not Arabic, although it could be any of those, but it could be all of those. It might even be Esperanto or Klingon. But because we don't know what it is, it pulls people together because they all have an equal chance of solving it. At the same time, what it does is it pulls people in the direction of space. What it does, it asks people, if there is something or someone out there sending us a message, what else is out there? What does it tell us about what is possible here on Earth and in space? And given that we spend a lot of money on space exploration, is what we do in space actually useful here on Earth? It turns out, yes, it is, because almost everything that you do in order to solve this message will give people the skills to be employed or to start businesses, to talk to other people in their daily lives. And that, I think, is one of the greatest examples I can think of in terms of equality in space exploration, pulling people together in a way that does not really care about where you come from. Thank you for joining us on this journey through a Sign in Space podcast. As we bid farewell, we encourage you to continue engaging with the Assign in Space Discord community as they venture forth on this quest for knowledge and understanding. So keep your eyes on the stars, your mind open to the unknown and your spirit unyielding in the pursuit of wisdom. Until we meet again in the boundless expanse of space, thank you for being part of this voyage.